I'd like to invite your attention with me back to the book of Ephesians. This time I want you to go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin with verse 7 and we're going to study through verse 16. And I will remind you, for those of you who may be visiting with us today and for those of us who are here each week, that the book of Ephesians actually falls into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 3 discuss the blessings that God has provided for man. Chapters 4 through 6, Paul focuses our attention on the subject of behavior. How those of us who have been blessed ought to act within his church. Last Sunday morning, we'd studied the lesson on unity from verses 1 through 6. A very important theme that was established by Paul. But then Paul follows that with the section we're going to study this morning with an emphasis or an observation about diversity. Now don't misunderstand me when I emphasize that. We have a lot of people today talking about unity in diversity. And when they talk about that, they're saying that you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, and we'll just all agree to disagree, and we'll all walk together. That's not what the Bible teaches about diversity. What the Bible teaches about diversity is, is that we all teach the same doctrine, but there are personalities that are different. There are backgrounds that are different. There are talents that are different, abilities that are different, and that we all together can make up the one body of the church. If you will, let me point out to you, this is very similar to what Paul spoke to the Corinthians in the book of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 1 and verse 10, he said, Now I plead with you, brethren, that you all speak that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. He emphasized the unity which he wanted in the body. But when you come to chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, he said there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. You understand the abilities that God has provided each of us, and we are each able to do our own part within the Lord's kingdom. Well, it's going to be my purpose this morning in this lesson to explore with you chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, and to see the maturity that is brought there. If you will, if you are trying to keep up with an outline, here's the outline we will follow for our lesson this morning. We will ask three questions from this text. The first one is, what? What did he give from verse 7? He gave presents or gifts, if you will. The second question will come from verse 11. Who did he give? He gave persons who possessed those gifts. And then number three is why, and that is to prepare his body to grow and to mature and to become what he would have us to be. Let's begin, first of all, with verses 7 through 10. 
And I want to encourage you, it's going to be on the screen, but I encourage you to follow this along in your own Bibles. It may be that you want to make yourself some notes as we try to study together God's Word. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who, who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now when you read that, the concept of ascending and descending is what captures our attention. But I want to focus you back to verses 7 and 8 when he talks about Christ's gift that was given. And then he says in verse 9, giving this quotation, gave gifts unto men. That is the focus of this section. That is, God gives something to men. Whenever a gift is given, what are some things that you want to know? Well, I think most of us, number one, want to know who gets the gift. If we come here this morning and we're passing out gifts, well, who gets them? Number two, what is the gift that is being given? Someone hands you a little package and it's all wrapped up. Well, what have you given me? Is it something good or is it something bad? Number three, what is the occasion? If I were to come to you this morning and hand you a wrapped gift and you would, might say to me, why are you giving me that? What's the occasion of it? Well, I want you to notice as we start answering those questions, to each one of us, grace was given. When Paul writes that to the Ephesian brethren, he is saying to each one of us, grace is given. When you start thinking about that, that means that everyone benefits from the gift. Let me give you an illustration of this. Every year at the holiday season, the church here has been very, very, very generous and kind with me and my family in giving us a gift. In doing so, it not only blessed me personally, but blessed my family. Whenever you give a gift to one person, he also will then share that with those who are of his family. When you think about this gift that he's speaking about, who gets it? Everybody is going to benefit. Everybody is going to enjoy it. Well, what is the occasion? Well, for me to teach this properly, I've got to look at the passage. If you'll notice, verse 8 is a quotation. It's found in Psalm 68, verses 18 and 19. And whenever you have a quotation in the Old Testament, you always go back there and see what that passage was saying. And here's what it was talking about. It was talking about a conqueror who was going out and when he had conquered this other nation, the spoils that had been given back to him were going to be spread among others. Let me show you this. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. 
Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. You see, David, when he talks about that, it's like this conqueror has received all these gifts, and what is he going to do with them? Is he going to keep it for himself? No, he is going to share those gifts. And that's the reason why verse 19 is so key. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. God shares with us. Jesus conquered death and Satan, and he shares the benefits with those of us who are his children. But then that brings up the third question is, what are the gifts? What is given? Well, in order to understand this properly, you have to understand that the Bible on more than one occasion has discussed this same topic. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. There's the point that Paul was making to the Ephesians. One may get the gift, but the gift is a blessing to everyone. To everyone grace is given. Now look at verse 8. For to one is given the word of the knowledge through the Spirit, to another the word of uh, uh, Word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gift of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the discerning of spirits, to another the different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. There are nine gifts, miraculous, spiritual gifts, that were given to the early New Testament church. They were gifts. That's the reason why we call them the spiritual gifts. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. Do you see again the unity and the diversity of the gifts? So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace given to us. And then he talks about prophecy and faith. Clearly, at least some, and if not all, were miraculous gifts for the prophet of the church. Now, those gifts were embodied in people, in persons. Notice with me verse 11 that Brother Chuck read. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. When you think about these gifts being embodied within people, God could have chosen any number of ways in order to communicate his will. He could have placed it within the mind of every man. God could have revealed it through the Spirit to every man. But that's not the way he chose to do it. It was God's plan to use people. And he embodied these gifts within people. And let us look briefly at some of these various ones to whom he gave these gifts. He gave apostles. What is an apostle? These refer to special men chosen by Christ to guide the infant church. It's not my purpose this morning to try to look at every detail about an apostle. That is a very important study. 
But notice with me, according to Luke 6.13, And when it was day, he called the disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. These were twelve special men. Verse 14 and 15 of Mark 3. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have power over or heal the sicknesses, and to cast out demons. But you know, as you go further, you realize that these men possessed some special powers that were not among the general membership of the Lord's body. In fact, if you read 2 Corinthians 12, 12, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. These men had the ability to work miracles. Something unique to the apostles is they had the ability to impart that power. Acts 8, verse 18. And when Simon saw through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. God gave apostles so they could teach, so they could preach so they could be a guide to that early infant church, but he also gave them an extra ability to be able to pass it on to someone else. And he gave some to be prophets. These were men who had the gift of prophecy. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. A prophet was a man who could get up and deliver a message from God because God had given him a message to deliver. It was received, as Paul would say, by revelation. In Ephesians 3, 5, in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. But the third group that he speaks of are evangelists. And an evangelist is a person who teaches the good news, the gospel. We talk about gospel preachers. That's an evangelist. We read in Mark 16, 15, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. God's message is heralded, preached, declared by men. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul says, I charge you, therefore, before God, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. And he talks about time's going to come when men won't endure that. They won't listen to it. Drop down with me to verse 5. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Timothy was an evangelist. Philip was an evangelist. What did they do? They preached the good news. Number four was pastors. 
And I'm afraid here's an area where so many people get confused today. If you go out on the street and you ask a person, what's a pastor? You know what they're going to say? It's the preacher. Many people have the idea that preachers, I'm using the term as a verb, pastor a church. That's not biblical teaching, folks. Let me explain to you what the Bible does say about these people. The word that is used here for pastor occurs 18 times in the New Testament. Every time but this one, it is translated shepherd. But here it's translated pastor. A shepherd is one who guides and directs sheep. The verb form, this is a noun here, the verb form, however, is found in a number of passages. And I can give you two of them that I think will make it abundantly clear about what he's talking about. Acts 20, verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, or we could say to pastor the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. To whom did he speak this? The elders from Ephesus. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, The elders who are among you I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And then he goes to verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Peter addressed 1 Peter 5 to elders. Paul addressed Acts 20 and verse 28 to elders. Pastors are our elders, our overseers, and in the plural. And then teachers, the fifth one. It's possible that the teachers goes with the pastors. If you're reading this in the original language, it's almost like they're grouped one by one until you get to pastors and teachers. Perhaps the reason being is because, according to 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2, one of the qualifications for an elder is to be apt to teach. So they would be teachers. But a person must know what they teach. When Paul wrote Timothy about these false teachers, he said, desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor the things they affirm. They don't understand what they're talking about. You cannot teach what you do not know. And you have to be aware of the fact that it's a very serious thing to be a teacher because you will give an account for every word you say. In James 3.1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now let me move into the third question. We've already had the first question is what? Presence, gifts have been given. Number two, who? And he talks about the persons in whom these gifts were embodied. Now the third part is why? Let's look at verses 12 and following. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. 
till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. But speaking in the truth and love may grow up in all things to him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. There are reasons. Why God gave these gifts. There are reasons why God gave these persons. It's to bring about the equipping and the edifying and the education of his body. Let's look at equipping for just a moment here. He said you are equipped for the work of ministry. What does it mean to say that a person is equipped for ministry. In fact, the word equipping comes from a rather unique word in the Bible. It's the word for the mending of nets, where you take two things that are torn and you bring them back together and you knit them together and you make a hole out of them. That's the reason why some translations use the word perfecting. But it's the idea here of making sure everything fits in its place. All of these things was so the church could minister to the world in the gospel of truth. God wants his people to be prepared, to be equipped, to be furnished for the work of ministry for a spiritual service. Number two is for edifying. And to edify the body of Christ. That means to build up the church. It's accomplished when everybody does their share. That's from verse 16. Each one of us put our part in, and that's what causes the church to be built up and to be edified. And then third, he talks about education. He talks about the knowledge of the Son and speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things. Full unity comes from an educated membership. You know, we can get up here and we can talk about a lot of things that might be interesting to you. But the truth is, the only thing that is going to make this church grow up and be mature and be strong is when we teach God's Word in love. Division comes from arrogance and ignorance. When we're determined to have our own way and when we do not know what we're doing, unity comes from having a mature, educated body. Immature children, spiritual children, are subject to smooth teaching by cunning imposters. I can't tell you how many times you can just go through the Bible and just see them one right after another. Let me very quickly run through this. 
When Paul writes the Corinthians, he said, I cannot speak unto you as spiritual, but as unto carnal, as unto babes in Christ. And then verse 3, he says, For there is envy and strife and divisions. Are you not uh, carnal and behaving like mere men? Or when you go to Romans 16 and verse 18, he talks about those who are sowing division in verse 17, and he says they are such as serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by their smooth words and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the simple. That's the untaught, the uneducated. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, he talks about the things that Paul wrote, and he says there are some of them hard to understand. Verse 16. He says, which the unlearned or untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. You see, the problem is, is that some people are untaught and they're susceptible to the devil and his dangerous teachings. God has prepared the church with everything that it needs to grow and prosper. And that's why. Now let me summarize all this together. What a great thought. A mature church. One that has grown up and now has so many people, everybody contributing a part so the church is strong. But that means that every one of us have to grow. As 1 Peter 2, 2 says, As newborn babes desire the spiritual milk, pure milk, that you may grow thereby. God did not intend for any of us to remain spiritually immature. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 talks about those who ought to by this time be teachers, but they need to be taught again. And he rebuked them for that. Everyone must start somewhere, sometime. Now really when we end this, every one of us ought to be looking at our lives and saying, am I as spiritually mature as I ought to be? Have I realized that God has given the gifts those spiritual gifts that he gave those men who provided for us the word. He has provided that in persons who taught us. And we have the product of their work in our Bibles. And that God has done this so that we can be mature. Have I latched on to that? Am I letting it guide me and direct me into maturity? If not... Now's the time to make some correction. Everyone has to start somewhere, sometime. And you don't put it off and say, well, start. I think I'm going to start the first of the year, start reading my Bible every day. I think the first of the year I'm going to start attending all the Bible classes and try to get involved. Or I think the first of the year I'm going to start. No, you don't wait till then. You start now. Someone says, well, I think I'll become a Christian when I understand it all. You won't ever understand it all. Everybody has to start somewhere. Sometime. And now's when you need to start. If you need to become a Christian, 
be baptized for remission of your sins. We're ready to help you do that. If you are a Christian who needs to be restored to faithfulness, we'll help you do that. Would you come as we stand together and sing?